Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with you all and, and to see half your faces, most of you. Uh, everything that David has said about me, I, I can say uh, that much more with respect to who he is and his character and his gifting. So it is a joy to be in um, the presence of just friends uh, across the board. And you know, we do live in, in some really unique times. I mean, it just seems like month after month, just things get stranger. Uh, and I don't know how much more are, you know, a lot of people can take. And I think as we look at um, the call of the church, how do we gather around a message week after week, month after month, year after year, especially in the midst of very significantly changing seasons of life? And I want to share with you a passage from the Psalms, because the Psalms present a spirituality of living in the world that is very broken. The Psalms help us understand what is it like to live in a world where God is supposedly sovereign and in control. And yet, when we look at the realities of what we're living in, how can you begin not to raise some really hard questions in the midst of some significant wounds? And I dare say we all have wounds. We all have wounds that we carry. Some of our wounds are just the pains of living in a broken world where we see and experience things that are not quite right. Wounds that we've been seeing of late of racism. Wounds that respect the reality of a world that feels very disparate. That people have and people don't have. When we think about what's happening even this past week with the Ukraine, we see the systemic ways in which evil continues to propagate its power. And it seems that there are so many in the hands uh, of futility that they don't have a, a way of pushing back. And it's into this context we need to look at this psalm to understand what is it trying to teach us? How do we begin to understand a spirituality that is real, that is earthy, that is grounded in the realities of the wounds that we all bear? And Walter Brueggemann, my iPad to work here. Walter, Walter Brueggemann wrote a book called The Spirituality of the Psalms, which I found to be quite helpful. And he, he organizes the Psalms as Psalms of orientation, Psalms that help you land. This is who I am. This is the world I live in. And you begin to grow comfortable. And then things happen. And he said, there's a second set of Psalms that are Psalms of disorientation that communicate what it feels to be disoriented in a world that you thought should be a certain way. And then a third set of Psalms are Psalms of new orientation, where the gospel begins, the character of God begins to break in as you realize through the challenges you've been through, a new orientation that is God-centered, that helps you make sense of the disorientation that you once experienced. And what's beautiful about the Psalms is the Psalms express some very hard questions. And sometimes in some places, it's hard to raise hard questions, especially regarding who God is. Because when you raise hard questions, sometimes you're almost challenged by people saying you lack faith. Or sometimes even worse, they, they think you're just being obstinate or rebellious, but you're just simply trying to understand how do you make sense of a broken world where there is a God who supposedly says he is sovereign? And that's why the Psalms and the spirituality of the Psalms are so helpful because the Psalms give you permission to ask these hard questions. Walter, Walter Brueggemann writes this. He says, nothing is out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. 
Everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. And to withhold parts of life from that conversation is in fact to withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these Psalms make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. So well said that everything must be brought to speak, especially the, the hard questions that emerge from the wounds that we are discovering about our own selves, about our own society. And as we look to the Psalms, we have to be willing to wrestle with God, but more importantly, actually hear a response from him because that response may not be the one that we anticipated, nor the one we want to hear. And yet when we begin to hear his voice in the midst of the, the darkness of wounds, we experience the power of the gospel in some striking ways. And it's that dynamic that I want to look at as we look at Psalm 147, to be able to deal with our wounds with the God of wounds and to understand how these wounds lead us to a darkness that ultimately culminates in a life-giving light. Let me read this psalm to you. I'm only going to read the first 11 verses. Um, just a little bit of context in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalm 147 actually stopped at verse 11. And I, I too will follow that uh, kind of demarcation. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds, as the earth with rain, and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. This is God's word. Let me just begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we come with a lot of questions, especially in light of what's happening in the world around us. How can we live in a God and a world in which you are sovereign? When we continue to see injustice and pain. And we ask Lord, that you might use this time as we look into your word, as we open ourselves to your spirit to be able to hear your voice in the midst of this darkness, guide us or through this darkness that we might see the glorious light that awaits us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The nice thing about Psalm 147 is it begins, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise it. The psalmist is on the other side of trauma. This psalm falls into the categories of, of Brueggemann as a psalm of new orientation. That somehow the psalmist has gone through these hard times and he's made it. 
He's made it. How awesome it is to be able to praise God, to feel like I don't have these, I don't have to look around me. I don't have these triggers. I don't have PTSD. The jolt of these things taking me to these dark places. I'm able to praise God and how good and fitting it is. And so we can gloss over the introduction of this psalm and just say, okay, this is just a psalmist saying this thing. But we have to understand the circumstances around the psalmist and appreciate that when he says, praise the Lord, there is something about where he is in his life that he can say it is good and fitting to praise God, that he has seen and understood something that allows him to say that God is to be praised. And that is a good place to be. And I know some of us are there to be able to look at the world around us and to say, praise God. But a lot of us are not at that place as well. And what has the psalmist understood such that he can begin the psalm with a song of praise? What has he come to understand about the way God interacts with a broken world such that he is able to say how pleasant and fitting to praise him, even in the midst of such brokenness? And the core of this passage really is found in verse 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem because right after he gives this pronouncement of praise, he says the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of, uh, the, the exiles of Israel. And that phrase helps us understand the wounds that he has recovered from. Because Israel, if you're familiar with the context of the Old Testament, Israel was divided. They entered into civil war. And the north was invaded by the Assyrians. And then years later, the south was invaded by the Babylonians. And they were both exiled. And the experience of the exile is hitting particularly at home for a lot of people right now in our world. Of being dislocated away from the things that are familiar to you. The things in which you would consider to be the routines of your life, the things that have brought comfort to you, the people, the smells, the locations, all these things stripped away. And all of a sudden, you're forcibly removed into a place where you do not know if what tomorrow will hold. You don't know the, the future for yourself and for your children. And the trauma of that experience is once that deepens as the psalmist begins to understand the questions that emerge from those wounds. Because inevitably, the questions of why and who, and it's easy to say and to blame the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south, but as we look at the scriptures, we see that the wounds are actually deepened because ultimately, the people of God, Israel, they know it's God who ultimately carried them into exile. But the answer to the question of why God and who is responsible for this falls back into the hands of the God who supposedly brought them into being, who nurtured them, who cared for them. And so how is it that God can say that I'm the one who exiled you? And as we look at some of the wounds in our lives, as we might be able to name specific people, places, organizations, as the cause, as the direct cause of some of the pains and the injuries we have received, as we come to God in prayer, we have to begin to wrestle with the deeper parts of the wound, which is ultimately, God, you are the one. You are responsible for this. 
but you are the sovereign God who enables these things to happen. I found that I need to pause sometimes because we need to think about that and let that sink in. And that's again, something we learn from the Psalms, that word Selah, of just the pause. Like, let's just think about what was said. God, you are the cause of these wounds. Psalmist rightly talks about heartbreak because nothing breaks your heart than when you realize people in your family are the ones who have caused these wounds. One of the most powerful articulations of this realization was written by Elie Wiesel in the New York Times back in October 2nd, 1997. And I think this, this prayer of the days of all that he wrote in the Times is so appropriate where we are again in our culture and our society. And it's a lengthy prayer. And I'm just going to read a part of it because he captures so well, I think, what the psalmist is trying to communicate about the pain of understanding. Ultimately, as Jeremiah 29 says, it is I who brought you into exile. And this is what Elie Wiesel writes. What about my faith in you, master of the universe? I now realize I never lost it, not even over there during the darkest hours of my life. I don't know why I kept on whispering my daily prayers in those ones reserved for the Sabbath and for the holidays, but I did recite them, often with my father and on Rosh Hashanah Eve, with hundreds of inmates in Auschwitz. Was it because the prayers remained a link to the vanished world of my childhood? But my faith was no longer pure. How could it be? It was filled with anguish rather than fervor, and perplexity more than piety. In the kingdom of eternal night, on the days of awe, which are the days of judgment, my traditional prayers were directed to you as well as against you, master of the universe. What hurt me more, your absence or your silence? In my testimony, I have written harsh words, burning words about your role in our tragedy. I would not repeat them today, but I felt them then. I felt them in every cell of my being. Why did you allow, if not enable, the killer day after day, night after night, to torment, kill, and annihilate tens of thousands of Jewish children? Why were they abandoned by your creation? These thoughts were in no way destined to diminish the guilt of the guilty. Their established culpability is irrelevant to my problem with you, master of the universe. In my childhood, I did not expect much from human beings, but I expected everything from you. Where were you, God of kindness in Auschwitz? What was going on in heaven at the celestial tribunal where your children were marked for humiliation, isolation, and death only because they were Jewish? Hear the echoes of Psalm 10.1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble?
Jesus, aren't you supposed to be the head of the church? How can the church be so complicit with genocide, racism, white supremacy, the hidden scandals, the child abuse? How can you claim to be the king of kings? And what kind of king are you? Why do the wicked prosper? And into these honest questions, into this darkness, we begin this dialogue with God. Begin to realize that we have a God who does not shy away these questions, nor does he chastise his people for asking such hard questions. And he begins to help us understand that now we are dealing with the world in which he is dealing in. We begin to operate with God at the level in which he has yearned to invite his people into, not at this superficial level of religiosity, but at a deeper level of human existence, of what it means to seek a world and the good of this world in the midst of such brokenness. And the psalmist here begins to articulate as the verses go forward what he has come to realize, what he has heard in the midst of the darkness, because when we begin to air out these questions from our wounds, we begin to understand that we are not alone in the darkness, that there is a voice that responds back to us. And it echoes creation. And we see in the rest of this psalm how God's character begins to be articulated by the psalmist. As we think about verses four on, let me get there in the actual text here. The psalmist talks about he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. He draws the attention to the hearer, this, the simple fact that when you look into the evening sky, despite the circumstances that you're in, you're brought back into the reality of a world that seems to be consistent, constant, that the skies do not change. Though they change through the seasons, they remain the same. And you see a familiarity as you look up in the heavens and you're drawn again to reality, reality from a different standpoint, a different vantage or perspective. And you see that this is the God who calls each and I looked this up, 200 billion trillion stars that are out there. And he calls each of them by name. He determines them. He appoints them. I can't even fathom what 2 to the 23rd power looks like. And yet the psalmist says, when you look up, this is the God who appointed every single one of them. And you see that the naming of the stars is a proclamation of God's authority over, just like God called Adam to name the animals as a, as a sign of his authority over the animals. So when God names the stars, he's saying, God is the Lord of this universe. And he goes on as he begins with the proclamation of God's his sovereignty over creation. He says in verse 5, a great is our Lord, mighty in power, and he exerts in the midst of the trauma of the world around him that there is a God that is more powerful than the things that you see, that great is our Lord and mighty in power. He goes on in verse 5b to assert the wisdom of God, that his understanding has no limit. Even when our wisdom or intelligence fails us, we see the psalmist says God's wisdom has no limit. 
He moves on in rapid fire in verse 6. Mercy and justice. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. And he assures his audience that God is the God of both mercy, sustaining the humble, but also justice, casting the wicked to the ground. And then in the rest of the psalm, verses 8 through 9, we see the provision, the care of this God. That he covers the sky with clouds and he supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. That he is a caregiver that he cares for the grass. How much more so will he care for you? And it's not lost on the psalmist that what this beautiful creation attests to all began first primordially in darkness, that we had a God who was in darkness, that before those words, let there be light, and in the chaos of what existed, God was there in the darkness, and the darkness was a prelude to this creative flourishing that would ensue. And think about that, that we have a God who sits in the darkness. And we see that pattern as the psalmist echoes God's, that this is the God of creation, that we begin to understand that there is a dynamic. That as we move now from this psalmist, we begin to understand that in the darkness, there is a voice that reorients our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. But as we see... Again, going back to those lines. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. That in this disorientation, there is a reorientation or a new orientation that God exiles Israel in order to rebuild Jerusalem. I'll say that again. That in this darkness, the realization that occurs is that God exiled Jerusalem, or Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem. That is powerful. When you begin to understand the context of the Israelites, you know that this was God's people, the people that God had intended to reflect his character into the world, to be a city on a hill. And yet, when you look at the history of the Israelites, in the midst of prosperity, they began to trust in the strength of their alliances instead of trusting in their God. Instead of seeing who God is, they began to make these foreign alliances. They started to trust in the strength of their horses and in the strength of their own legs, their human ingenuity, their ability to perceive what was going on and make human wisdom and wise associations. Meanwhile, what was beginning to slip away was who God is to them. That God was the one that would bring about their flourishing. That God was the one who would heal their wounds. And we have to understand that in the complexity of the brokenness around us, that over time, sin, which is parasitic to the good, becomes so intertwined with things that we associate with things that are good and right, that we become blind and numb to the way that brokenness becomes systemic. That we begin to rely upon patterns that are not from the Lord, and yet they are being confused as if they are. That we mistaken strength with pride. Instead of understanding that our strength comes from our dependence upon the Lord, we try to grow to become people and organizations that move from strength to strength. And that is a sign of, I would say, civic religion. It's showing the front of strength, that everything is good with the world, that everything is fine. But we see here 
in the darkness and the questions that come, a different kind of God, a God of wounds, a God who does not shy away from the, the wounding that allows people to be reoriented and from that reorientation to allow the deepest parts of who we are and to allow the fabric of our society to actually begin to reflect his character. He recognized that Jerusalem had moved so far from his intentions that he had no recourse but to bring them into exile, but he had a greater plan that from this wound, he would enable them to experience the rebuilding of the place where he would dwell with his people. We see this in the book of Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And what does that mean for the witness of the church today? As we begin to understand this larger dynamic of God begins to take us into these periods of deep wounding so that in that darkness, we might begin to encounter a voice that deeply reorients us, that leads us to repentance, the changing of our minds. What does that mean for the rebuilding of the church, for the reviving of the church? Because I don't think it's a secret to be able to say that the church has undergone some real trauma. And how do we begin to understand God's purposes behind this trauma? What is he trying to revive? What have we gotten so wrong that this trauma was necessary for the rebuilding up of his people? And this reviving of the church will not happen despite of these, this trauma, but actually because of it and through it. And as we look at the progression of the Psalms, we see the starting of the recognition of the wounds that we have, that the church needs to be a place for wounded people and for wounds. How do we begin to understand what it means to allow your wounds to define you? Because you recognize the deeper wisdom that God is bringing from the wounds. The kind of church that can mistakenly be built is one that comes from the strength that we see in the world around us. And yet we see a very different kind of God in the scriptures, a God of wounds who is present, who is participating and attentive to the wounds of his people. This is the God of grief, a God of sorrows, a God who actually is so intertwined with the reality of our world that he wants us to begin to express and articulate these wounds. How can storefront be a place where people begin to name the wounds? Name them in such a way that identifies our vulnerability, but also the reality of a God who calls us not to be ruled by these wounds, but by naming and assert our authority over these wounds. That these wounds are not the things that define who we are, nor will they control our destiny. And so how can we become a place for wounds because in the wounds and in the darkness, there is a voice that we begin to hear. That the, the dynamic of wounds in our lives, it kind of allows us to hear a different voice because our eyes are opened, our ears are attuned 
to the reality that there are different structures and different systems that can operate that are different from the ones that we have experienced that has led to the brokenness that we've encountered. And in that darkness, we begin to hear a voice, a voice that begins to articulate a very different message, a message of our, I'm going to use some biblical language here, of idols being destroyed. And that through the darkness, we are given a new sight. That God is going to give us a new heart and allow ourselves to feel things in a way that makes our hearts burst. That in the darkness, we begin to experience spiritual companionship that allows us to know the joy of journeying with another person. And in this darkness, we begin to experience new dreams, new visions, new hopes, a reality that is different from the ones that we often see with our eyes. And is this voice one that we will make time to hear? Will we create these rhythms in our lives, both daily and weekly and monthly, to be able to hear that counter voice that is forging a new way? Because in the darkness, we hear a voice, and that voice leads the people of God to greater justice. The God's Spirit is doing a new work in the midst of this darkness. And new things begin to emerge when we hear that alternate voice. That the way that God deals with the brokenness of the world is not only to bring that judgment upon that brokenness, but also, or the sin, I should say, but to lift and raise up those who are bowed before him. And will Sorfman be also a church in which these new things emerge because we hear that different voice? How do we begin to act towards justice in a time in which injustice is becoming known becoming more flagrant and just aware. How is it that we are moving into that justice? And let me just say, there's we have seen just in the people of New York, just these dreams that have come true that move towards justice. You know, some of our friends, Noemi Avocado, you know, turning the trash she encounters on the street into art and giving people people who are struggling financially, the skills to be able to turn this trash into art, to be able to make a living. You think of people like our, some of the, our friends that we know, the evil things of the world who are taking from the death that we have seen so much around us during these last two, two years and creating a new organization that are helping people honor and prepare for death. Right? That allows people to understand that we need to be honoring of those that we love and prepare in that great passing. There's so much new activity happening, but we as a church have to not only be able to see and hear it, have to build networks and communities that support these larger works of renewal and justice. Because God is creating a counter, a counter culture in which there is light that shines more clearly exposing the darkness. And I want to close with this, um, this one quote that many of you know, but I think it's, again, relevant in our time today. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, wrote in his Gulag Archipelago, in the midst of, of being in prison, he wrote, bless you, prison, bless you for being in my life, for there lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. 
the very pains and the wounds that we have now might be the things as we look back, because there is a day coming. There is a wounding that is so deep and so powerful that it will be, make all things new. And that God is not only returning his people to a Jerusalem, but to a new Jerusalem. And one day we will hear those words from Isaiah 40, 1 through 2, 1 through 2 comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord, Lord Tan double for all her sins. I want to conclude by just giving us a time to hear lastly from the Lord. This is a practice that I'm trying to cultivate to be still before the Lord, because that is what we lose in the prosperity that we often experience, that the voices that we hear shift from God's primacy to the voice of those around us that often do not share that same wisdom. And so let me close by reciting Psalm, the rest of Psalm 147, verses 12 to 20. And I invite you just to listen. Soul the Lord Jerusalem, praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. And he has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Only as we close in prayer. Father, our thoughts are drawn to the church in Ukraine. people are experiencing this psalm in some profound ways. And while we in the safety of living in a, a city like this, where we ask and we intercede for our brothers and sisters, 
we're experiencing this profound dislocation and disorientation. But in the midst of these startling and striking events, Lord, we pray that you would reorient your people, that we would begin to understand that our hope and our strength is not in, in horses nor the strength of our legs. It's not in the things, Lord, that we often pursue, the things that we often want here, or that your church is to be defined by a new wisdom. From new wine, that creates new wine skins. And we pray, Lord, as you have planted this church, Lord, do you begin to allow these wounds to enter in so that the questions that are raised will allow the people of this church, the leaders of this church, to hear your voice speaking a message that leaves, that moves towards justice and mercy. And what we do pray for the sustaining of your church, especially in the Ukraine, as they intercede for their people. We ask, Lord, that you would protect them. And we pray that you would change hearts. That somehow our common humanity can enable people, Lord, to see what it is that we need to be fighting. And we thank you, Lord, for this new work that you will be doing. We pray that that time will come swiftly. And until then, we pray that the church around the world would continue to bear voice to a, an ancient wisdom, the wisdom of Christ. Lord, and we await your return. We pray that you would come soon. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.